Welcome back to Conversations for the Good. Hello, Dr. Jane. Hi, Anna. How are you today? I'm doing really well. How about yourself? I'm doing just fine. So it's always good to be together. I know I keep saying that, but it really is. <laughs> well, I agree, Dr. Jane. And, you know, here we are again, right? A week into questioning one of our favorite habitual patterns of thinking and behaving with curiosity and kindness. Now, that's a challenge, don't you think? <laughs> yeah, yes. <laughs> Well, we have a natural reaction to be tough and critical on ourselves. And Dr. Jane, I got to tell you, we would never say the things we say to ourselves to anyone else. Well, I'm sure not, Anna. You know, and it's, it's asking a lot of ourselves to question old habits. You know, most of us are either oblivious to these patterns or, you know, for some of us, we've given up on ourselves or Others, you know, continue to judge and criticize ourselves. So, uh, you know, we think that our harsh reactivity is somehow going to prove motivating. And this is why I continue to inject the need for kindness, gentleness, compassion, and curiosity in every component of this self-exploration. The thing is, you know, we really want to figure out our barriers, what's keeping us from more consistent time in our best and highest self. Yet the compassion is often left behind in our disappointment with doing the same old habits. We have such a strong desire to do it differently, but, you know, oops, there we go again, you know, falling into our old ruts. Well, yes, you know, and this is so often where we find ourselves, you know, recognizing our vulnerable patterns, you know, the ones that interfere with being our best, and we have a desire to be different. You know, this desire can begin to activate us, but, you know, in the long run, it's just not enough. You know, plus, you know, we also need to investigate the, the motive, the motive behind our desires. You know, our desires can sometimes align with old conditioning, you know, and, and beliefs, you know, the, sometimes the self-limiting beliefs, you know, other times they might, you know, provide a reward, you know, even if it's, you know, momentary, momentary reward. So, so gentle questioning, like, you know, what parts of me are fueled or triggered by this desire or asking, you know, what parts of me stand to gain by having this in my life, you know, or is this desire pointing me in a specific direction? And is it the direction I want to go? Yeah, those are all great questions and always heading back to check out the inner territory. You know, like you explained in our last conversation, staying in awareness and watching the thinking, recognizing the triggers that cue us into habitual behaviors that perpetuate those old autopilot patterns. Yes. Yes. You know, what we're uncovering the autopilot patterns of what we think and feel and do and our relationship to these habitual patterns, you know, how the patterns play out in our lives, how they become a routine and are repeated, repeated even when they don't support our quest to be our best selves, you know, how we justify the patterns, you know, how we try to make the patterns right. So we're not just looking at what's happening, but also the process of how that unfolds. So this is so very important because you know, if we can dissect 
the process, if we can dissect the system, you know, that continues to play out, we have a significantly better chance of formulating a plan to intervene with conscious choices. Yes, it goes beyond the initial something's wrong, you know, (laughs) and we're not just targeting the behavior as the culprit. That's right. That's right. The behavior is more often than not the result of our inner process. This is why focusing on changing behaviors as a primary goal oftentimes doesn't work. You know, we need to investigate the variables within the habitual process, within it, the triggers, the cues, the the routine and process. You know, this is all which is, you know, sums up to, you know, how we acted out and our our return on investment that we've talked about, you know, the reward we get from it, even if it's a momentary reward. These are all the ingredients that build our relationship with the habit. And the relationship is what can have more meaning and more pull because it's the composite of many of the components. A lot Mm -hmm. of different parts go into it. So understanding this multidimensional relationship is critical. Agreed. Agreed, you know, and, and it can determine our approach, you know, which, which really must be more than just there's something wrong with me, you know, or, or any kind of other forms of self-recrimination or judgment, you know, or criticism. Just hearing those words, self, you know, recrimination, <laughs> judgment, uh-huh. and criticism come across so negatively. Well, and that's exactly what, what I want to address next. You know, and, and there's some neuroscience here that, that I think can be enormously helpful. You know, so let's go back to that example that we've often referred to, that University of Maryland study, where the two groups, you know, in the study are working on a timed paper and pencil puzzle with a mouse running through a maze. And one group's mouse is seeking the delicious cheese and the other, mouse, the other group's mouse is trying to outrun a predator owl. And the second part of the study was, was an immediate kind of um, follow-up of a problem-solving test that showed that the group that had the mouse trying to escape the owl performed 50% worse at the creative problem-solving ta- test that followed the puzzle, the maze puzzle. So the groups demonstrated two different modes. The mouse after the cheese was considered to be in a positive approach mode And the mouse outrunning the owl was in the negative aversion kind of fear-based mode. Yes, the negativity surely does throw us off course, making it difficult to do our best and probably be our best. Well, exactly. And the neuroscience behind this helps explain, you know, what's happening. And as always, Anna, you know, for our purposes, we, we always keep the, the science simple and practical. So in the problem-solving situation with the mice in the maze, we're really talking about two very distinct parts of the brain in operation of each group. You know, the, the primitive survival brain is activated in the group that's outrunning the predator owl because there's a sense of danger. You know, so there's a, a fear-based movement towards safety. And the subjects in the study assumed this mode as they tried to escape the owl. So this negative aversion mode is totally focused on keeping alive, 
You know, in the survival mode, there's really no room for creativity. The thinking brain is offline. It's about staying alive. And then in the other group, you know, we have the the prefrontal cortex in, in operation. And this shows up because this is a more sophisticated, higher functioning thinking brain, you know, and it's activated by the approach group, that positive group, the positive mode group, which was the mouse pursuing the cheese. And here the subjects who are doing the paper and pencil test really assume a positive life-enhancing dimension in this activity. And so in the long run, we have the creativity was more available in their thinking and their analyzing process. I think I see where we're going with this. We want to access the thinking brain as much as we can as we navigate our vulnerabilities and then plan to change. Exactly. That's exactly it, Anna. You know, we want to enter the exploration of ourselves with a positive approach mode attitude because we want to maximize our potential for creativity. You know, and and yet so often in our culture, you know, uh, certain behaviors are targeted as bad, weak, um, unhealthy, you know, and the change process so often focuses on fighting an enemy. You know, those unhealthy behaviors or we consider the bad behaviors are, are the enemy. And so we're all about conquering the enemy. And the prize is having the results we want. You know, and, and you know what? We're not saying that this is a bad scheme. You know, it, it works for many. Yet the research that I've been following, you know, shows that somewhere between 89 and 95% of people in programs, programs to change behavior, like to improve health, don't remain compliant. You know, this includes weight management programs, fitness programs, programs designed to stabilize and improve chronic health issues like cardiac problems and diabetic issues and respiratory ailments like asthma and COPD. You know, so again, so often the programs focus on a result and what you need to do starting today, but rarely explore the thinking, the feelings, the beliefs that contribute to the condition. You know, and the key is it's really not about either or. Both are necessary. You know, and a current plan and an understanding of our relationship with the unhealthy habits, you know, that's really where we need to be, you know. So as best we can, we want to be kind and curious from the front gate to access the more sophisticated part of our brain as we work in our own behalf to be the best version of ourselves. And being curious and compassionate rather than critical gives us the edge as we explore how our life is playing out and how the best version of ourselves can be realized. Yes. And as we discern the habitual patterns that interfere with our quest, we want to be interested, but without judgment. So our internal dialogue might sound something like, oh, oh, wow. How about that? No wonder. You know, just kind of staying open. You know, remember the very young part of us initiated these very patterns to get needs met, to feel safe in what was perceived as an unsafe world. This can be quite a contrast to our typical reaction to personal flaws. 
And when we're trying to act and think differently, falling back into habitual patterns feels discouraging. Oh, gosh, yes. You know, and it happens. You know, changing habits isn't a perfect trajectory to new behavior or success. You know, and, and some recent studies that I've been checking out of, of how people successfully change habitual behavior patterns really highlights small incremental improvements. And along with these incremental improvements, they also focus on the speed at which one writes their direction when they veer off course. You know, and this last piece, you know, about recovery time is incredibly important. You know, the longer we're off course, the more likely we're back in habitual patterns, feeling discouraged, thinking, what's the use? I'm such a loser. And finding ourselves, again, in that negative aversion mode. So, you know, we also need to look at the fact that, that ma- many of the, the, um, the major athletic teams have incorporated practices like, like mindfulness training to counter this. You know, so an athlete might goof up on the field or the court, and yet having the ability to shake it off and recalibrate their concentration allows them to resume play at their best. Well, bouncing back is extremely critical, and I can see why. Again, our mindful awareness offers us access to see what's happening as it's happening, and, and quite frankly, can, can provide the pause to choose again. It's that conscious choice again. You know, simply going to our breath as soon as we detect our reactivity, you know, or as soon as we detect the, the preceding trigger, can prevent the downward spiral into the autopilot thinking, you know, or, or moving into that three-minute breathing space that we continue to do a couple times a week, you know, is a mindful option that supports our reconnection to the awareness, the awareness that is always available to us. So, you know, other practices like turning toward the discomfort, you know, we've done that practice as well. And it's a lengthier practice, but it allows time to explore negative feelings without fueling them, to really kind of get to know what's going on in our relationship to them. So the further we let ourselves fall down the negative spiral of that habitual thinking and feeling, the longer and the more difficult it is to find our way out. So having these practices, you know, maybe a cross-section practices at best, you know, that we're familiar with provides amazing tools for shortening that recovery time. Let's look again at the broad brushstrokes of creating change in our lives. We're taking an honest inventory of ourselves and our quest to be our best and highest selves. Well, you know, Anna, we've touched upon several different components, haven't we? I mean, we really wanted to understand the multifaceted foundation that really makes up, you know, who we take ourselves to be, you know, and this is an imperative as we challenge ourselves on our quest to be the best version of ourselves. So all those streams from our history, accompanied by conditioning, training, influences from um, family, educators, clergy, these contributed to the formation of our beliefs, both the the self-limiting beliefs, but also self-enhancing beliefs, you know, and, and we've also wanted to be aware of the fact that not all of our influencers are obvious. Many beliefs, and, and certainly 
you know, the disowned shadow part of ourselves are alive, alive and well and directing us blindly, you know, from our unconscious mind. Well, our last conversation put these habitual thinking and behavior patterns into context of our own personal patterns, our usual modes of dealing in life with family, friends, coworkers, and bringing it home, you know? Yes. You know, which is so important, you know, that we personalize these concepts, we integrate these concepts and identify our own area of vulnerability, you know, knowing where we get triggered, you know, which are the habitual patterns, you know, uh, what's really going on. And unless we bring the information home to ourselves and begin to use it, well, it's, it's really, you know, just collecting data, which is kind of a waste of a life, you know, ours. So we're in the exploratory phase. We're getting to know ourselves, getting to know our patterns. And once we begin to recognize patterns and vulnerabilities, it's about being willing to discern, which very often takes time to just kind of be with what we're beginning to know about ourselves. You know, what do we do to maintain these patterns? You know, how do we make them right? How do we make them right? Because we all do. You know, how does it feed my current beliefs? You know, how does it support my identity, who I take myself to be, who I want other people to take me to be, you know, other, other people's perception of me, you know, and also what's our return on investment or what kind of rewards do I get from this? Even if it's a momentary reward, what am I getting? And we're unpacking all of this again with kindness compassion, and curiosity. We really want to know in an open-hearted way. Dr. Jane, you make it sound like wanting to make friends with ourselves. <laughs> Quite frankly, you know, that's a perfect frame for the self-discovery. You know, it's a desire to get to know ourselves. And, and like a faithful friend, stepping up to the plate and offering our understanding, offering our support, and, you know, maybe a few helpful, helpful suggestions. Now, remember, we want to maintain a positive attitude to enhance the creative process. Let's unpack one of the habitual patterns we listed last time, like the rescuer. Okay, the rescuer, one of my favorites. <laughs> you know, the rescuer pattern is, is usually activated um, in people who are overly responsible. Sound familiar? And, um, and also who have a difficult time with feelings of uncertainty. Sounds familiar to me. Mm -hmm. um, and so the well, belief of the rescuer is often, I'm not okay. I I'm okay, but you're not okay. So I'm going to fix you or the situation that you're in. And very often the behavior comes from a history where it could be that, that rescuing was modeled you know, in the rescuer's young life, or in many cases, the adults in the rescuer's childhood were not dependable, you know, which created uncertainty and anxiety and angst, you know, because it all goes with that uncertainty. So there's also for the rescuer a wanting to be loved and appreciated and seen as a good person and an amazing problem solver. And when, when all works well, the rescuer, though, very often feigning great modesty, you know, gets to feed their identity with, I saved the day again. Okay. It's just kind of where it comes from, you know, and, and when the gratitude and accolades 
aren't forthcoming after the rescuers backbreaking efforts, there's an overwhelm of resentment and anger, you know, and like the people pleaser and accommodator, the rescuer often fixes other situations at the cost of their own self-care. It becomes so obvious as we unpack the patterns. Well, you know, it's important to remember that we're not suggesting that all the rescuers' behavior be trashed. We're wanting to find a healthy balance grounded in awareness and healthy choices. So we're shedding a light on the motives, the intentions, and deciding how might it best fit with the best version of oneself. Well, yeah, you mentioned the last time that we may have more than one pattern that we activate routinely, depending on who we're with or the circumstances we're in. Well, that's right. You know, for instance, my main vulnerability is people pleasing and accommodating. Yet I also have a strong pull to be a controller, you know, in in many cases. And, And I know it comes from being given lots and lots of responsibility when I was probably too young to manage it all, you know? So I took on the controller kind of a, a bulldozer persona. In fact, my younger Sib used to call me Sarge, you know, short for Sergeant, you know, it was, it was a way to allay my fears and get the jobs done, you know, jobs that overwhelmed me, you know, and it came with lots of praise. So again, there was the reward. However, as an adult, it hasn't served me as well, especially with family, Um, you know, working with clients, you know, operating on boards and on committees. So I've had to modify it. Yeah, you you make it sound so obvious when you unpack it. (laughs) Well, that's the point. You know, we want to continue to unpack, unpack what's going on without judgment, without judgment is is part of our journey. I mean, this is just part of what we're doing, how we're living more consistently from our best and highest selves. So it's like removing the barriers, but we have to be willing to look within to see what's really going on. I definitely think that's the key, Dr. Jane, for sure. So are we continuing to unpack this week? Yes, Anna, let's do that. You know, let's, let's really look to be in mindful awareness practices, you know, see if we can't operate within those on a more regular basis, being consistent, and also gently unpacking some of these habitual patterns, being able to identify some of it, and inquiring into, what am I getting from it? Well, I always look forward to my mindfulness practices, and it will be wonderful for us to continue to unpack without judgment. Thank you, Dr. Jane. Thank you. Until our next conversation.
Until our next conversation.